Hey, it's Alexis Asadi, and welcome to episode 30 of Income Investing, a show that explores different investments that produce income and or dividends. We've spent the past two months covering investment funds, which, as we know, are a pretty deep source of income-producing investments. Last week's show was about real estate funds in particular. We're going to recap all that shortly. But today, we're going to go on a sort of a tangent and talk about single-asset real estate companies. These are businesses that are formed when a group of people pool their money to invest in one property. For example, 200 people amalgamating their capital to buy a $5 million strip mall. Now, single-asset real estate companies are not technically investment funds, but they have some similar features. They're basically a real estate fund that only ever invests in one piece of real estate. So if you've ever considered a real estate crowdfunding deal, or if you've ever partnered with more than a few people to invest in a property, then this is exactly what I'm talking about. If this is your first time listening to the Income Investing Podcast, thanks for checking us out. I appreciate it. My name is Alexis Asadi. I'm your host. And every Wednesday, we cover various investments that produce dividends, preferably on a monthly basis, but sometimes quarterly too. We look at anything from real estate investment trusts or REITs to mortgage lending to royalty corporations to income stocks to peer-to-peer lending and far beyond. These kinds of investments have various features that many of us find attractive, including the fact that you can use the revenue that they produce to supplement your income, whether that's from your job or from your business. Or you can reinvest it and harness the power of compounding returns. As well, many of these investments can appreciate in price, so you can earn both income and capital gains. They exist in all sectors of the economy, including in real estate, utilities, mortgage financing, energy, and natural resources. They're on the stock market, and as we'll see today, they're also available on the private markets too. And many of these investments can be purchased with just a few hundred dollars, thus making them quite accessible. So, like I said, we've been focusing on investment funds ever since episode 23, so let's spend a couple of minutes recapping some of the major takeaways. Number one, an investment fund is a business that gathers money from investors, sometimes dozens, sometimes thousands, and it deploys it into various assets. So far, we've seen that they'll invest in real estate and in mortgages, but in the coming weeks, we're going to explore funds that invest in stocks and bonds and private equities and green energy and more. Number two, a fund will usually be structured as a trust or a corporation or a limited partnership or LP. It'll have a management team that is compensated for its services, and the fund will have a mandate or an objective, such as providing their investors with monthly income. Investors will usually get paid the proceeds of the fund's investments, minus management fees, minus administrative expenses. And number three, funds can be a great way to gain exposure to investments that we may not want to or know how to buy ourselves. For example, if you want to invest in a technology company, but you don't know where the best opportunities are, you could instead buy into a technology fund that's managed by experienced professionals. And number four, like many other companies, funds can issue different classes or series of shares. They're often divided into letters like class A and class B and class C and so on. These classes will usually have different characteristics, like the right to vote, entitlements to profits, and so forth. 
It's kind of a small, boring detail, but it's really important for investors to know. So we've been covering mortgage and real estate funds for the past couple of weeks. We also looked at entities like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and the Canada Housing Trust. And all of this has taken us to the topic of today's discussion, single asset real estate companies. But before we jump into our talk, let's address a question from one of our listeners. As always, feel free to let me know what's on your mind just by going to alexisasadi.net slash podcast. Your questions and your comments are really helpful to me because they give me an idea of what people want to hear about. Otherwise, it's just me, myself, and I talking into a microphone all on our lonesome. So today's question comes from Adrienne, who's in Sarasota, Florida. She wanted to know if there are any funds that invest in tax lien certificates. Florida, as you may know, is a state that's well known for these kinds of assets. Adrienne, thanks for your question. Uh, Yes, these kinds of funds do exist, but I've only ever seen private investment funds that do this. None that actually trade on the stock market. So they typically require, at least from what I've seen, a very large upfront investment, usually above $150,000. I am going to cover them, but I think I'm going to do it in our segment that's about tax lien certificates. As you probably know, they're pretty complex. So I think it'd be prudent to spend some time exploring the underlying asset before we get into funds that invest in them. So stay tuned. It'll be in a couple of months. So with that said, let's get into single asset real estate companies. What are they? How do they perform for investors? And what are the risks involved? So large-scale property developments, anything from a row of townhouses to skyscrapers, are usually funded by investors. The real estate developer itself might contribute some capital, but its value is really in the project management. So if you look around at any large structures that are near you, they are in all likelihood a result of a partnership between at least three parties, the investors, the developer, and of course, the bank. In the 20th century, the vast majority of larger properties were funded exclusively by wealthy and institutional investors. It was really rare for a person to be able to invest, say, $5,000 into one of these deals. Rather, a $5 million apartment complex might see $2 million of equity from one single investor, and then a $3 million bank mortgage. But the capital markets have since opened up to retail investors. It's increasingly common for everyday people to be able to participate in large private placement opportunities. And that's only been escalated by the surge of online crowdfunding ventures. For example, a developer might raise $20 million from 2,000 investors, who each contribute $10,000. She then uses that money to finance the real estate project. Now, regardless of how the capital is raised, whether it's online or through brokers or done directly, it's really important to understand how these kinds of deals are structured. They can make for great income investments, but like anything else, the devil is in the details. So let's take a closer look. The first thing to know is that no matter how the deal is marketed, no matter what the promoter tells you, you are not investing in real estate. Rather, you're buying into a company that in turn will use your money to acquire or develop the property in question. So you are purchasing securities. You're a shareholder or a unit holder, depending on what kind of company it is. As we know from our discussions about investment funds, there are some major distinctions to be aware of. A. You, the investor, don't have legal title to the real estate. Rather, the company that you invested in probably does. B. 
the company will have a management team which is responsible for its performance. So that's not limited to operating the real estate. It can also include anything else that businesses have to think about, like accounting and legal compliance and taxation and so forth. Even if the underlying property is lucrative, a bad management team can ruin it for investors. And C, cash distributions will be paid at the discretion of management. That can mean monthly, quarterly, annually, or upon the windup of the project. So the deal will typically look something like this. First, the real estate developer will identify a property that she finds attractive. She might plan to renovate it, tear it down, optimize its performance, or do any number of things that might make for a good business model. But for our purposes, let's say that it's a parcel of raw land. The developer plans to build an apartment building on it. It should take about a year to construct and a year to occupy with tenants. She's then going to run the property for another five years maximize its rental income, and then try to sell it for a profit. The project should cost around $10 million to complete. The developer knows that she could get a $6 million mortgage from the bank if she can come up with a $4 million down payment. Second, the developer needs money for the down payment, aka she needs equity, so she's going to establish a vehicle through which she can raise financing. It's likely going to be a trust or a corporation or a limited partnership or LP, she'd presumably do what makes the most sense from a legal and tax perspective. In most cases, developers use pass-through vehicles, which are designed to simply pass on the proceeds of the project to the investors. So for our example, let's say that she uses an LP, so the developer would be the general partner. Remember from episode 24 that the general partner manages the limited partnership. Third, the developer will raise the money she needs from investors. In our example, she's looking for $4 million of equity, so she then sells 4 million limited partnership units to the investors for $1 each. She decides that the minimum investment that any person could make is for 10,000 units or $10,000. Fourth, the LP under the management of the general partner uses the $4 million plus the $6 million from the bank to buy the land. As we know from our discussions about mortgage lending, the loan-to-value ratio of this deal is therefore 60%. The real estate developer then carries out the business plan. She hires a construction company to build the property, and her property management firm then operates it. So in year one, the LP earns no revenue because the project is under construction. In year two, the stabilization period, the LP earns $100,000 from rental income. The property is built and it has some tenants, but it's not yet fully occupied. But that amount increases to $350,000 annually during years three through seven. And finally, after seven years, the LP earns a $2 million profit after the building is sold. So all told, the limited partnership got its $4 million back, it earned almost $2 million in rental income, and it made $2 million from the sale, so it doubled its money. It was overall a very big success. Now, under normal circumstances, the investors who are unit holders in the LP would share in the fruits of this venture. The bulk of the returns would be passed on to them. It would have been a reliable income producer for six of the seven years, and it would have provided them with a juicy capital gain right at the very end. As well, it would have given them access to a venture that they probably wouldn't have been able to afford to invest in individually. Not many people can come up with $4 million by themselves and then get a $6 million loan from the bank. 
However, these kinds of deals can sour because of technicalities. And so for that reason, we've got to pay attention to the way that they're arranged. To begin, the developer may have hired a broker to raise the $4 million for the LP and would have likely paid commissions on the capital raised. Therefore, not all of the money would have gone into acquiring the real estate and investors' returns would have been diluted to some extent. Then, the developer would have likely charged a flat management fee as the LP's general partner. She's obviously going to want to get paid while she operates the property. That fee is going to come from the LP's earnings, and if it's too excessive, it can wipe out investors' returns, or the fee might be too high if the property doesn't perform as well as anticipated. Moreover, the general partner will usually want some of the total profits. She needs an incentive to operate the real estate as efficiently as possible. For instance, she might want 25%. So in our case, the LP made about $4 million in profit, a combination of rental income and gains from the sale, and the developer would have therefore earned a million dollars, leaving $3 million for the investors. Again, this can be detrimental to investors if the amount is excessive. And fourth, the business itself is going to have expenses. At a minimum, it's going to have legal, banking, and accounting costs. I've also seen deals where the general partner is not only the real estate developer and the property manager, but it also owns a real estate agency, a mortgage brokerage, and a construction company, and it uses all of them in the same deal. So in our case, the real estate agency would earn a commission when the property is bought and when it's sold. The property management company would get paid throughout the lifetime of the deal. The mortgage brokerage would earn a commission when the LP secures mortgage financing from the bank. And the construction company would get paid to build the property. And this doesn't cost investors anything extra because the expenses would be incurred regardless. But it's just another way for the same group of people to get paid multiple times over. This isn't necessarily a bad thing, but you should be aware of it. Now, you can manage the risk of excessive fees by pricing them all out ahead of time. You can estimate the income that the project would generate. In fact, the developer will often tell you what to expect under normal market conditions. After that, subtract all of the potential expenses, including any portion of the profit that the developer might earn and any taxes that are payable. All of this should be clearly disclosed to you. If they aren't, then you should run for the hills. Investors get into trouble when they fall short on their due diligence. Many times they get enticed by the prospect of participating in a glamorous project and simply don't understand the underlying mechanics. And that's why I said right from the very beginning, you're not investing in real estate. You're investing in a company that owns real estate. For it to be a successful project, you need three things to happen. You need a good underlying asset, you need a competent developer, and you need a reasonable economic relationship between the developer and the investors. If all those components are there, then there can be a lot of money to be made. There are also two more risks that you should consider for this type of investment. First, it's illiquid, so you probably won't be able to pull your money out until the property is sold and everyone's capital is returned, so you're waiting five to seven years. And second, deals like these are often promoted as stable since they don't fluctuate in price in the way that a stock does. But that's just not true. It's misleading. Real estate values change all the time. It's just that we can't check their prices every minute. I had the same criticism about private REITs way back in episode two. So don't be fooled by these claims. Now, I use the example of a single asset real estate company in today's show because it fit in with the theme of our podcast. Last episode was real estate funds. But the subject matter applies to any single asset venture, whether it's drilling for oil or mining or developing clean energy or otherwise. 
I also want to point out that this specifically applies to crowdfunding deals, where investors can buy in over the internet. Regardless of how interesting the deal looks and how glossy the marketing is, it's the same as any other business project. The only difference is that the money is raised online instead of in person. So similar to last week, there are going to be two levels of research at least that are involved in this kind of deal. First, we have to assess whether the underlying asset is a lucrative prospect. In our case, does buying land and building an apartment complex on it make good business sense? Do the numbers check out? Is there a demand for this kind of real estate in the local market? And second, we have to figure out whether their financial structure is viable. What are the management fees like? How much of the profits do we keep? What are the taxes like? What are the administrative expenses of the business? Do we have voting rights, etc.? So next week, we're going to go a little bit deeper into this and look at a real-life example that's currently accepting money from investors. But let's wrap it up here for now. And just for clarity, uh, that project I have no connection to. I'm not getting any money out of it. I just happened to pop up on my social media feed, so I figured it'd be a good time to analyze it. Until next Wednesday, it would be great if you could like this podcast or even give it a good rating if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. This tells platforms that I'm doing a good job and they then make it easier for other people to find the Income Investing Podcast. Otherwise, thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next Wednesday.